Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Something that's come up on our show a few times is the difficulty of teaching anatomy to doctors in the early days of formal medical education. In terms of the episodes that Holly and I have worked on together, there's the Doctors' Riot of 1788 and Ignaz Semmelweis and the Handwashing Wars. And they both talked about the shortage of cadavers for dissections due to all kinds of cultural taboos, along with the lack of refrigeration and the spread of disease from cadavers to living patients. Um, The shortage of cadavers also led to grave robbing and murder, and previous hosts talked about that in the episode, Burke and Hare Who Didn't Steal Corpses. One of the ways that people have tried to avoid some of these problems is by using anatomical wax models as teaching tools. And in 18th century Bologna, one of the most skilled and renowned anatomists and wax model makers was a woman named Anna Morandi Manzolini, and she's the person we're talking about today which does also mean we're going to be talking a lot about cadavers and dissections. Also, sometimes you will see Anna Morandi Manzolini referred to as both Morandi and Manzolini, regardless of whether she was married at that point in the narrative. And since we're going to be talking about both her and her husband, just for the sake of clarity, Anna is Morandi and her husband is Manzolini. So we have records of people in Europe making wax models going back at least 4,000 years. This includes votive offerings left at pilgrimage sites in pre-Christian and Christian Europe, some of which depicted diseased or healthy human organs or body parts. For example, in medieval Christianity, someone who felt they had been divinely cured of a leg complaint might leave a wax model of their leg at a shrine as thanks. Starting in about the 14th century, people have also made funeral effigies out of wax, which depicted the deceased. By about the 13th century, so just a little bit before those effigies started to come into more widespread use, people were also using wax models to teach anatomy, but not in medical schools yet. Visual artists also wanted to study anatomy, and for a couple of centuries, artists were both making wax models and also using them to study the human body. This didn't totally eliminate the need for dissection, since the process of making an accurate wax model started with someone making plaster casts of a body. But the wax models made from those casts could be very detailed. They were also pliable, and they held up to repeated handling. And they lasted much longer than a cadaver did, especially in places with warm weather, without giving off offensive odors from decomposition or carrying the same level of risk in terms of spreading diseases. To fast forward a few hundred years, by the 17th century in Europe, the fields of anatomy and surgery were both starting to grow in prestige. Anatomists were directly influencing the evolution of surgery as they studied the human body and drew conclusions about how it worked and made these anatomical models that were then used to teach surgeons. And all of this was also feeding into a public fascination for anatomy. In Bologna, where Anna Morandi Manzolini lived, there was an annual public dissection at the University of Bologna's Teatro Anatomico called the Carnival Dissection. This spanned several days before the start of Lent, with the dissected cadaver being the body of someone who had been convicted of a crime and publicly executed just before. By the 18th century, Bologna was also working on an anatomical museum full of wax representations of the human body. 
Whether these models were meant for an art school or a medical school or a museum, making them still required multiple cadavers. A modeler who was hoping to make a whole anatomical series might start with plaster casts of the whole body prior to dissection. Then after removing the skin, another set of casts would document the muscles, the tendons, the ligaments, and the fascia. And then those structures would be removed layer by layer, revealing the internal organs with casts made of those, with the whole process continuing until only the bones were left. Unless the modeler also wanted to make models of the interiors of the bones, the bones could then be cleaned and used as a teaching tool, either as individual bones or mounted together as a skeleton. But in terms of all the soft tissues, this process was extensive and time-consuming enough that one body just could not last long enough for a modeler to make casts of everything before it was too decomposed to be usable. Wax modelers were very protective of their techniques and their recipes, but in general, in the 18th century, wax modelers were starting with a formula that included beeswax, oil or tallow, pitch, and turpentine. This produced a wax that was durable but pliable and could be mixed with pigments to produce different colors. Modelers filled their plaster cast with this wax, with both the filling process and the technique for releasing the wax from the cast both of that being very heavily protected secrets. Once it was out of the cast, the wax model would be cleaned, polished, and finished. Membranes, fascia, blood vessels, and other details might be painted on or represented with silk fabric or thread. The wax portions of the models were often varnished to protect them from dust and help them hold up better. As finishing touches, most modelers used real human hair as well as glass eyes, although some, including Anna Morandi Manzolini, generally sculpted their model's eyes from wax as well. Depending on how the model was meant to be used, from there it might be mounted onto some kind of decorative board or stand. Of course, over time, the aesthetic and artistic standards used for these models changed and evolved. When Anna Morandi Manzolini was living, models were at an intersection between science and art. An anatomist might also make models, but it was also common for an anatomist and a modeler to work together. The models were expected to represent the human anatomy, but at the same time, they might have some kind of symbolic or allegorical meaning, especially when it came to female anatomy. Sometimes artists intentionally created models that showed evidence of disease or some kind of atypical formation, but when it came to ordinary anatomical models that were going to be used for standard anatomy classes, anatomists and modelers typically worked toward a finished product that depicted what was thought of as standard or normal. One full-body model that was popular during Mirandi's time was the écorché, or the flayed man, which was an entire body, usually male, without skin, showing the underlying musculature in detail. A full-body model that became popular after her death was the anatomical Venus. That was an entire female body with real hair and a dissectable abdomen and pelvis. An anatomical Venus had multiple removable layers, which typically revealed a pregnancy once the uterus was visible, although the pregnancy was not usually apparent with all of the abdominal pieces still in place. The anatomical Venus definitely had a more metaphorical element rather than just being a straight-up anatomy model. Apart from this dissectable abdomen, the figure's positioning and expressions and overall attitude often had a sensual, ecstatic, or even erotic appearance. You can see lots of these today. I personally find them creepy. (laughs) 
an anatomical Venus often had jewelry on, like a string of pearls. And the first of these is known as the Medici Venus, and it was made for Florence's Museum for Physics and Natural History around 1780. So that was a few years after Mirandi's death. This wasn't a style of model that she personally was making. So Mirandi was living during something of a heyday in both anatomy and anatomical modeling, which was happening mostly in parts of what's now Italy, but especially in Bologna. And she was a huge part of that heyday. Bologna itself was also in the middle of its own revival as an intellectual and cultural center. At the time, Bologna was one of the papal states under control of the Vatican. By the 18th century, Bologna's earlier academic and intellectual prestige had really faded as a result of political infighting and mismanagement. A patronage system had been used to appoint faculty positions, and that meant that appointments were being based more on political favors than on a candidate's qualifications. For years, the Bolognese Senate had been appointing Bolognese citizens primarily to these positions, with very few exceptions, regardless of whether another candidate from somewhere else might be more qualified. Plus, Bologna's universities were tending to teach purely theoretical topics rather than doing any kind of experimentation or hands-on study. Of course, there are lots of different people and institutions involved anytime an entity tries to make this kind of turnaround. In Bologna's case, a couple of people were particularly prominent, though. One was General Luigi Ferdinando Marsili, who founded the Institute of Sciences and the Arts in 1714 to be a place of, quote, experiment, classification, and exposition. This institute combined two existing institutions. They were the Academy of Sciences and the Clementina Academy of Art, and they were both housed together at the Palazzo Poggi. Marsili also envisioned the space as physically connecting the sciences and the arts and encouraging collaboration between the two of them. Anatomy became a huge part of that connecting point with the anatomists and the artists working together to create these physical models. Another was Prospero Lambertini, who became Pope Benedict XIV, who was from Bologna. While he was working for the Vatican Library, he was dispatched to Bologna to mediate a dispute that basically boiled down to patronage versus qualifications. He sided with qualifications, which won the trust of people who were trying to reform Bologna's institutes of learning. He continued to focus on Bologna's development as an intellectual center after he became archbishop, encouraging the creation of an anatomical museum at Palazzo Poggi. That project was in the works for years, but it didn't really get moving until after he became pope in 1740, and he authorized a budget for it. Another focus for Pope Benedict XIV was making the sciences and higher education more open to women. That connected back to Mirandi's career as an anatomist and a modeler, and we will get to that after a quick sponsor break. in the 18th century, upper-class children were generally getting the same education regardless of their gender. This tied back to the idea of reviving Bologna as an intellectual center, as well as the idea that classical Greek and Roman knowledge needed to be preserved for posterity. It wasn't unheard of for girls who were of a more modest means to be educated as well. If a girl was considered particularly talented, a lot of times somebody in the community who had more money would arrange for her education. Bologna's universities also became, at least to some extent, open to women as students around this time. They still were not enrolled in equal numbers to men, but they had more opportunities for higher education than women did in many other parts of Europe. 
women who graduated from Bologna's universities or otherwise excelled in the intellectual sphere essentially became famous. One example is Laura Bassi, who got a doctorate of philosophy from the University of Bologna in 1734. She was the first woman in Europe to become a physics professor at a European university. And from the year she got her doctorate until her death in 1778, she lectured at the public dissections that we talked about before the break every year. Bologna's lady scholars were regarded with both respect and curiosity. One part of the Enlightenment, which was taking place in Europe throughout all of this, was the woman question, which was a debate about the nature of women and their abilities, as well as the subject of equal rights. The lady scholars were pointed to both as examples of women's capabilities and as exceptions to what the typical woman was. Simultaneously, these women rose to the tops of their fields on their own merits, while also being viewed as kind of curiosities who were worth knowing about because they were women. They also continued to face sexism in these roles. Lara Bassi, for example, could only teach from her home until very late in life. Uh, For many years, she could only teach at a university if she was specifically asked to by the Senate. So she had kind of this public lecturing role at the dissections where people could see, oh, here is our, our lady professor. Isn't she amazing? But she couldn't actually teach in a regular teaching role at the university. The classes must come to my house. (laughs) <laughs> that opens up for me uh, a raft of questions about how you manage that, but that's a... Yeah, well, and it, it wasn't uncommon at all for people to have schools in their homes at that point. Like, yeah. a lot of people were getting their first medical education at a medical school that someone was teaching in their home, but she was still barred from teaching at the university for a long time because of her gender. Anna Morandi was born into this world on January 21st, 1714. Her parents were Rosa Giovannini and Carlo Morandi. She also had a brother named Lazzaro. The family was of very modest means. When Anna married, an aristocrat paid for her dowry as an act of charity. Beyond that, though, we know almost nothing about her life until she married Giovanni Manzolini in 1740, although there are some sources that put the date of that marriage a few years earlier. Giovanni Manzolini was an anatomist and a sculptor and was working as the chief assistant to the papal commission that was building the anatomy museum at the Institute of Sciences and Arts. But just a few years into their marriage, Manzolini had a very public falling out with the commission's director, Ercole Lely. Pope Benedict had commissioned a full set of muscular and skeletal figures for the museum in 1742, including models of a nude male and female represented as Adam and Eve. Although assistants were carrying out most of the work on the models, Lely was getting the credit for it. As Manzolini refined and improved their wax formula and surpassed Lely in his skill as a sculptor, this really rankled. He resigned in 1746, and he and Mirandi began making models together in their home. Lely is going to come up again later. He seems to have had quite an ego that he jealously protected, including at the expense of allowing people who were better than him to be known as better than him. We really don't know whether Mirandi had been able to take advantage of Bologna's relatively open higher education opportunities for women. We don't really know what her education was. If she attended a university, it doesn't appear that she graduated, but she was deeply knowledgeable about anatomy, so skilled as an artist, and she drew on all of that in her work making anatomical models. 
From 1746 to 1755, Mirandi and Manzolini worked on anatomical models as a team. They did the required dissections and cast-making in their home and finished the models in their home studio. They also taught anatomy classes using the models that they made. It was common at the time for people to teach all kinds of subjects, including anatomy and medicine, in their homes, as Tracy said a moment ago. Their students included medical students as well as people who were just enthusiastic about anatomy. Many accounts say that Mirandi was squeamish about the cadavers, but that she overcame her fear and revulsion to work with her husband. However, a lot of the earliest biographies of her also present her accomplishments as something that she did only out of her devotion to her husband. So it's not clear if she really was squeamish or if that was sort of an embellishment made to emphasize how dedicated she was to him how she, like, had something she needed to overcome and that she only did it because she was so dedicated to her husband and to being a good wife to him. The work that Mirandi and Manzolini did together required them to dissect hundreds of cadavers. By the end of her career, Mirandi had done as many as 1,000 dissections. Most of these bodies came from the Hospital of Santa Maria della Morte, or St. Mary of Death, which housed Bologna's mortuary and was also where its poorest citizens sought care. So, as has been the case in other episodes where we have talked about the uses of cadavers in things like medical studies, many of these were the bodies of poor people or of people who had been executed for a crime that they had been convicted of. The couple did most of their dissecting work during the winter and overnight to try to preserve the bodies longer. But when it came to their finished models, their goal was never to replicate the look of a corpse or dead tissue. This is something that, like, if you see some wax anatomy models made in the in uh, in Britain around the same time, some of them look like that's a model of a corpse. They really strove for their models to appear lifelike. When it came to things like limbs and hands, the models were positioned in a way that suggested movement. And at the same time, they also strove for total accuracy in the anatomical structures that they were representing. This set their work apart from some of their contemporaries, whose work was sometimes idealized or allegorical, with sculptors trying to make a model that was sublime rather than one that was accurate. Something else that set them apart was their approach to the dissections. Rather than choosing one region of the body and focusing on that, they took a systemic approach, dissecting and modeling, say, all of the parts of the respiratory system as one project. Mirandi and Manzolini's reputations as both anatomists and as model makers grew very quickly as they worked together. People visited their home studio during their grand tours of the continent. They also learned some really high-profile commissions for their work. King Charles Emmanuel II of Sardinia, King Charles of Naples, and King Augustus III of Poland, along with other monarchs, nobles, and statesmen, all commissioned anatomical models from them. Their models were also commissioned by medical forerunners in Bologna. Giovanni Antonio Galli commissioned a set of obstetrics models, including the uterus during pregnancy for Bologna's first school of obstetrics, which he opened in his home in 1749. And this involved making models of someone who had died during pregnancy. The couple also made a set of obstetrics models and models of the ear for Pier Paolo Molinelli, who was Bologna's first chair of practical surgery. So their work was an important part of both these specialties in their earliest years in Bologna. Mirandi and Manzolini's work as anatomists also went beyond just making these representative models. 
They were learning and making discoveries about anatomy and physiology as part of their work and informing others of what they'd discovered. For example, on March 9, 1749, Manzolini published a treatise on deafness. While it didn't credit Morandi as a co-author, this paper was based on anatomical and modeling work that the couple did together. Morandi produced the most accurate and most finely detailed models of the ear and its associated structures, some of which are tiny, during her lifetime. So she definitely contributed to this paper, even though she wasn't named in it. At the time, the medical community was debating what caused deafness and why most deaf people also did not speak. Manzolini's paper reported on a dissection that they had conducted on the body of someone who had been deaf from birth and also did not speak. They found no differences in the nerve and muscle structures involved with speech from what they saw in the bodies of people who did speak. But they found that this person's cochlea was essentially absent. So Manzolini's paper concluded that in this case of congenital deafness, the deafness was the reason for the absence of speech and not some other anatomical cause. After the Anatomical Museum at the Institute of Science and Arts was complete, Morandi also led tours of the collection for high-ranking visitors to the city. She also tended to be the person who gave tours and demonstrations of their home studio. In addition to being her husband's partner in everything related to dissection and modeling, she was also really the public face of their anatomical work and their modeling business. Mirandi's life changed significantly in 1755, and we will get to that after a sponsor break. On June 7th, 1755, Giovanni Manzolini died. He had been seriously ill with some kind of progressive wasting condition for some time. In some accounts, it's described as tuberculosis. In others, it is dropsy, which was usually used to describe edema. So this could have been something like heart failure or a circulatory problem. Mirandi was 41 at that point and the mother to two sons, Giuseppe, age 10, and Carlo, age 6. She and her husband had actually had six or eight children together during their marriage, but these two were the only ones who survived. Mirandi was well-known and highly respected for her work as both an anatomist and a modeler at this point. She had also taken over all of her husband's work as he became too ill to do it, and she was faced with a difficult decision. Not long after Manzolini's death, Catherine the Great, at the time Grand Duchess of Russia, extended an invitation for her to come live at court. Other monarchs and nobles had done the same. There wasn't exactly a bidding war, but many of these offers were motivated by the idea that Mirandi would be available now that her husband had died. But Mirandi really just doesn't seem to have wanted to leave Bologna. It doesn't even appear that she traveled outside of Bologna during her life. The leadership of Bologna didn't want her to leave either. She wasn't just one of their lady scholars. She was their lady anatomist. If she moved away, they would be losing both a resource for the study of anatomy and sort of a tourist attraction. So Pope Benedict XIV granted Mirandi a lifetime stipend of 200 lira in 1755. She was also named public modeler and demonstrator of anatomy at the University of Bologna. Also in 1755, she was inducted as an honorary member of Clementina Academy of Art. 
The last woman to be so inducted before Mirandi was previous podcast subject Rosalba Carriera, 35 years previously. Mirandi also continued to teach anatomy in her home, and in early 1756, she was given access to as many cadavers and body parts as she might need for her modeling work from the Hospital of St. Mary of Death. However, that 200 lira was a very small stipend. By comparison, Ercole Lely's stipend was 1,200 lira. Lara Bassi's was about 500 lira, and that was probably because she had a university degree while Mirandi didn't. Additionally, anatomical models were really time and labor-intensive to produce, and Mirandi's commissions often involved multiple intermediaries along the way. It was not uncommon at all for the time between the commission and the payment for her work to be at least two or three years. So this stipend and her commissions were enough to keep Mirandi in Bologna, but not enough to let her make ends meet. On October 3rd, 1756, she surrendered her older son Giuseppe to an orphanage and relinquished all her parental rights for him. That was something that had been arranged almost a year before, because it was obvious that Mirandi could not make enough money as a woman in her position to support two children. It really was not that uncommon for parents to surrender their children to orphanages at this point. And a little more than two years later, Giuseppe was adopted by a noble family who had no heir of their own. Mirandi had been quite well known before her husband's death, but afterward, her status as a widow made her even more of a curiosity. She continued doing dissections and making models at home with a particular focus on the hands, the sensory organs, and the male reproductive system. She wrote a 250-page anatomical notebook, which was a handbook of anatomy that corresponded with her models, along with nine volumes of notes on her dissections and her models. One thing she doesn't seem to have kept is extensive notes on the anatomy of the female reproductive system, possibly because she thought anything she might contribute to that knowledge would be dismissed as intuition or something else non-scientific because of her sex. Yeah, it's kind of speculative, but a number of people have been like, yeah, she just didn't really comment on, like, the uterus or the ovaries on anything like that at all in any detail. While Meanwhile, she made extensive work of the male anatomy, or the male reproductive anatomy specifically. Uh, she also distanced herself from the idea that she was an artist. The Academy of Art that she'd been inducted into was part of the Institute of Sciences, like we set up at the top of the show, and that was the affiliation that she claimed for herself, which kind of amuses me, because that was technically <laughs> true. <laughs> but it did put the focus on science instead of art. For the next nine years after her husband's death, Mirandi did extensive work. She secured commissions for model series from the University of Turin, the Royal Society of London, and nobles and monarchs, including Catherine the Great. Visitors to her studio included George Gordon, Lord Byron, French astronomer Joseph Jérôme de Lalande, and professor of medicine John Morgan, who helped establish medical education in the United States. Byron naturally found her focus on the male reproductive anatomy quite titillating, as did some other commentators. This period of intense work was interrupted in 1764, when Mirandi became seriously ill and had to spend several months recovering. During those nine years between her husband's death and her illness, she had created some of the most detailed and accurate models of some of the body's most delicate and tiny structures. She had also discovered the course and attachment of the oblique eye muscle. 
She also had continued to improve on the wax formulation and methods that she and her husband had used. She had sculpted large-scale versions of the eye and ear so she could show their microscopic structures. She had corrected the work of early anatomists, and her contemporaries consulted her on subtle anatomical questions. Germano Azoguidi, one of Bologna's leading anatomy professors, described her as having astonishing skill, both in dissecting and in creating the wax anatomical figures, and said that she had become so renowned that, quote, her name has reached as far as Moscow. After this illness, though, Mirandi had a lot of trouble getting back on her feet. On September 3rd, 1765, she asked for an increase in her honorarium of an additional 200 lira a year. Her pay still would have been less than Laura Bassi's, and it would have been a third of Ercole Lely's, but that was denied. On May 6th of the following year, Mirandi sold her collection of wax models to Senator Count Girolamo Ranuzzi, who eventually published the entirety of her work. She later moved into his palace to act as a curator and caretaker for that collection. She sold him her anatomical library and all of her instruments on April 6, 1771. She was permitted to keep using all of these tools and materials, but any models that she made from this point were probably made from plaster casts of her existing work, rather than fresh dissections. She also continued to receive high-profile visitors, including Emperor Joseph II of Austria in 1769. I I think her patron was okay with her making wax models in his home, (laughs) but not with dissecting cadavers in his home. (laughs) Uh, even though she had done that in her own home with so many cadavers over so many years. Anna Morandi Manzolini died on July 9th of 1774 at the age of 60. Her will mentions both of her sons. She references the fact that her older son had been adopted by this noble family and was going to be coming into an inheritance from them so that Then, apart from leaving 50 lira to a servant, she left most of the rest of her estate to her younger son, who was not coming into some other fortune. Uh, Most of this inheritance, though, was continuing residuals from the sale of her models and her library. She was buried at her local church, but exhumed and moved to Certosa Cemetery outside the city walls in the 19th century. Two years after her death, the Bolognese Senate purchased Mirandi's waxworks and installed them in the Anatomical Museum at the Bolognese Institute of Sciences in Palazzo Poggi. The Manzolini Room was inaugurated at the Institute in 1777. Ercole Lely's écorchés were moved to make room. Ercole Lely had blocked the installation of work by anatomists and sculptors he saw as a threat to his own reputation and legacy, but his death in 1766 had removed that obstacle. Just after Mirandi's death, the Center of Anatomy and Wax Modeling in what's now Italy moved from Bologna to Florence. The Royal Museum of Natural History opened there in 1775 with many of its models made by Felisa Fontana. Clementa Susini, who made the first anatomical Venus, was also from Florence. Mirandi's earliest biographers often describe her work primarily in relation to her husband, as something that she took up and continued in devotion to him. 
They also tended to frame her as an improvisatrice, which was a popular idea at the time, that brilliant women from modest families just sort of appeared and then spontaneously and naturally evidenced some kind of major gift in the sciences. It wasn't until more recent decades that people examined her work on its own without the idea that it was an extension of her husband or some kind of specifically feminine random genius. In the centuries after her death, Mirandi's wax models changed hands a few times and eventually fell into disrepair. Much of what was commissioned for private collectors has since been lost. Her extensive study of the male reproductive anatomy was lost as well. Her notes still remain, but not the actual models. But many of the surviving pieces were extensively restored in advance of the Musée di Palazzo Poggi's reopening in 2000. This included Mirandi's life-size self-portrait in wax, along with a portrait of her husband. In her self-portrait, she is dressed in the attire of a Bolognese upper-class woman, including strings of pearls at her neck and wrists, and she's shown in the act of dissecting a human brain. Her husband is depicted in the process of dissecting a heart. Art critics have noted that this was a subversion of 17th century beliefs about sex and gender, something that was uh, really being debated during the Enlightenment. One widespread belief, though, was that women were ruled by their hearts and their feelings while men were ruled by their minds, something that persists today. But these two waxworks pair Mirandi with a brain and her husband with a heart. Eventually, refrigeration, air conditioning, an adequate supply of cadavers, and the development of plastics supplanted the wax and anatomical model. Most of them that still exist today are museum pieces rather than being used as active instructional tools. However, wax is still a modeling medium for artists and things like the Madame Tussaud Wax Museums. I mean, wax is cool. It is. I've been to the one in in New York, and I actually had a lot uh, more fun there than I thought that I might. I don't know what, I just, it's like it's a wax museum, whatever. But, and then there was a, uh, there was a Ghostbusters installation. I don't know if it's still there, but I was very excited about that. Yeah. Uh, That was like a day that you and I were in New York for something and I had a couple of free hours. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) uh, if you want to learn more than what we have just talked about, um, read The Lady Anatomist, The Life and Work of Anna Morandi Manzlini by Rebecca Messberger. That was one of the sources for this episode. It goes into more detail about all kinds of stuff about her life and is just in general a really interesting book with lots of great footnotes if you want other citations in detail. Do you have a little bit of listener mail? I do. Uh, This is from Tegan. This actually came um, almost a month ago at this point, but I, I needed to ask Tegan a question about it before I read it. And Tegan said, it's fine. Please read it. So... Uh, Tegan says, Dear Tracy and Holly, uh, Tegan has an episode suggestion that I'm going to skim past. I also couldn't resist writing to you after hearing your behind-the-scenes mini on Lord Elgin and the Parthenon marbles. I am a museum curator slash educator, and I'm very much in the give-them-back camp and was interested to hear their history. I visited the British Museum a few years ago with my husband on our honeymoon, but we didn't stay in that room very long because I had promised myself I would turn my work brain off for the day so that I could enjoy the museum. Of course, I was still wearing my museums-are-not-neutral t-shirt like you do. I was amused to see that the British Museum has pamphlets in that room explaining their position on not returning the marbles, which were as one-sided as you might imagine. 
It was uncomfortable to me to see these pamphlets when they didn't have any such disclaimers with the many, many other artifacts of questionable provenance or ownership, but that's the power of a high-profile controversy. I strongly agree with you about the paternalism aspect of museum collecting. I can say that the field is absolutely having conversations that include, but if this high-profile repatriation happens, then people will look more closely at the provenance of other things we have. As you can imagine, there are lots of people within the field who say, yes, that's the point. No one's goal is to empty museum collections entirely, but to be more ethical in our practice. Present-day professional standards require museums to do due diligence to ensure that the people who give or sell them artifacts have good and clear title, but professional standards don't mean everyone lives up to them all the time. And, of course, there are plenty of museums that have not done the work to confront the histories of their collections. Last but not least... If you're ever interested in a guided visit to the Ether Dome at Massachusetts General Hospital, where surgical anesthesia was first successfully publicly demonstrated in 1846, I'd be happy to show you around. Um, I, I'm very intrigued by that idea, so maybe I will make a trip into Boston sometime soon. Uh, all the best, Tegan. And then um, Tegan <laughs> uh, clarifies that it is a long-time, first-time emailing but Tegan did meet both of us after a live show in Somerville um, after volunteering with Headcount. Yay! Thank you so much, Tegan, for writing to us today. Thank you also uh, when I emailed to say, hey, I really love this email, but also it seems like an email where people could, uh, you know, piece details together. We try to protect people's privacy. Um, She said, please read it. (laughs) Well, not please read it. She said we had her permission to read it. So... Thank you, Tegan, for that email um, and for having that great insider perspective on what's going on at museums right now. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. We're also all over social media at Miss in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. Uh, we used to tell folks in this part that we had a website with a searchable archive of every episode ever. Our website has changed. It's not so searchable anymore. However, Google has mostly caught up with the shift. So you can do what I used to do (laughs) for the old website to get links for people, which is to Google the episode topic followed by Stuff You Missed in History Class. I know it's a little convoluted, but it's still sort of searchable, just in a different way. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.